Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Is half an hour on your radio where we are all going to be talking science. First of all, Manisha, what are you going to be talking about? Um, this week I've got some cool new science from the animal behavior world and I'm going to be talking um, about another um, study that's just been recently published in science on corvid intelligence. So that I should love be fun. corvid intelligence. I know, it's so it's good. One of my it's so topics. fun. I know. This week um, I have an interview with the curator um, of health and medicine at the Powerhouse Museum, Tilly Boleyn. She's in the studio. Um, she's going to be in the studio talking to me about a couple of exhibitions that are coming up at the powerhouse so um there is a recollections um exhibition that's happening and then also an exhibition happening all about the voice it's 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 called this is the voice and it's not that crappy tv show <laughs> and it it's is, not it's not john farnham's it is not record. john farnham's record it is neither of those two things it's the third thing the actual human voice and the disembodied voice and the embodied voice and yeah all of those sorts of things um so yeah we're, we're gonna be having a chat about the voice using your voices using our voices yeah, excellent. yeah how appropriate and Chris? Well, I have scientific controversies for you today. Um, chronic fatigue syndrome is a diagnosis that has in the past been controversial, and for some people still is, and in particular seems to attract controversy sometimes. I'm going to be looking at some of the controversies around it, including a recent study that was shown to be really poorly done. And um, yeah, and shows how sometimes it takes a lot of effort to overturn some bad research. And don't we love overturning bad research here on Lost in Science? So stay tuned for that. Some of our listeners may remember um, a story that I did a little while ago on crows and ravens and how intelligent these birds are. So today I wanted to share um, some new research with our listeners. Basically, the authors suggest that the ravens that they studied uh, can make decisions and anticipate future events based on their past events and their previous experiences. So they can use their memories to form decisions similar to how we do. Um, so the authors set out to test the ability of ravens to plan for, for future tool use or trading by conducting a series of three experiments. Um, so in each experiment, they had a tool use, tool use part and a trade part. And so with this whole future planning um, uh, uh, hypothesis in mind, the first experiment was to see if, that, if ravens could make decisions 15 minutes into the future. And so they conducted the first experiment, and again, two parts, the tool use part and the trade part. For the tool use part, um, they... Uh, basically, the ravens were previously taught that a specific tool would open a box and they would receive a food reward. So during the experiments, uh, the ravens were exposed to the box without the tool to open it, and then the box was taken away. And an hour later, they were presented with a choice of four items, one of which was a tool that would open the box that they had seen previously. And then um, after they had made their choice of these four items, um, the, all of the items would be, or the three remaining items would be taken away. And 15 minutes after making their decision, um, they would receive the box again if the, if the tool that they chose was the correct tool to open the box that they were presented with earlier in the day. So 15 minutes after um, they made the decision on which tool they wanted to choose from the tray, the box was returned. But again, only if they had chosen the right tool. 
Um, so this was um, in with the intent to see if they remembered what they were exposed to previously. So um, an hour in this case, and then if they could make a decision um, for a tool that they could use then 15 minutes into the future. On average, the Ravens successfully selected and used the appropriate tool 79% of the time, which suggests that they remembered the box from earlier and they chose the tool that they could use later. Mm. For the trade part of this first experiment, uh, the Ravens were previously trained that if they exchanged tokens, um, that they could exchange tokens for food rewards. So in the experiment, uh, one e experimenter would, would ask for a token while the Raven didn't have any. And then an hour later, another um, another experimenter, so one that hadn't asked for the uh, for a token, would offer the raven a tray with three tokens and three other random objects on it. And then again, 15 minutes later, the original experimenter who had asked for um, a token earlier in the day would return and ask for a token in exchange for food. In this in this half of the experiment, 92% um, of the and. 92% of the ravens, or 92% of the trials, um, the ravens exchanged at least one token for food, suggested that they anticipated being asked for the token by the original experimenter, and so they chose these tokens, and they didn't just choose them to use, but they chose them to store them for later, because they were presented with six items, and they could take however many they wanted. So they chose to take these uh, tokens and store them for later. In these, in these experiments, they concluded that there was a little bit of this anticip uh, anticipation behavior being displayed in the ravens. And so they wanted to see how far, um, how far into the future this uh, sort of behavior could, could last. So in the second experiment, the setup was the same as the first, except um, instead of asking for the, either the token or uh, presenting the box 15 minutes into the future, they presented it 17 hours later, so overnight. Um, so they, they gave the Ravens the, the option to choose a tool or a token the evening before, and then the next morning they presented them either with the box in the tool use um, ex side of the experiment or, with, uh, or they asked for a token for ex in exchange for food in the um, trading side. Again, a similar result was found, and in the tool use part of the experiment, tools were successfully used 89% of the time, and in the trade part of the experiment, the Ravens acquired food 96% of the, um, in 96% of the trials. Um, okay, so after all of these, after these first two experiments, um, the authors are pretty sure that the Ravens had this ability to um, make future plans, basically. So they were able to make a decision that would help them out in the future. So they wanted to see if if this was also linked to ability, uh, an ability of self-control. So basically, are they able to uh, forego an instant re reward, an immediate reward, in anticipation for a future reward? So in the final experiment, they tested whether the Ravens can act with future events in mind um, and disregard an immediate valuable food reward in favor of a tool or token that could give them access to an even more valuable reward after a 15-minute delay. In both of the experiment parts, the tool use and the trade part, the Ravens were presented with a tray that included either the tool or the, to uh, the token, depending on the trial, and a food reward. So they were presented with the food reward right off the bat. The um, Ravens selected tools, the tools, 74% of the time, and tokens, 73% of the time, instead of taking the food reward. In comparison, when there was no tool or token presented, the Ravens chose the food reward 100% of the time. 
Uh, this suggests that the Ravens were able to exhibit self-control and forego an immediate reward uh, with the option to plan for a future award and potentially a better reward. Um, these results re reveal that the Ravens make decisions for futures that they are not yet aware of, but that could be possible. Essentially, that there is this anticipation behavior that the authors hypothesize that there would be. But they're kind of gambling, aren't they? They're sort of, you know, they're taking a punt on what they think is going to happen. Yeah, but even to be able to do that, like to to have the to have the cognition to gamble, you have to be able to anticipate that there are multiple p potential causes or results. And, well, yeah, multiple outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than just, oh, well, I don't know what's going to happen, so I'll just yeah. eat the food. Yeah. And yeah, exactly right. So it's not just this. Um, almost survivorship behavior it's not just i need to eat because there's food available to me there's this oh i can actually maybe i, I won't eat now but later on i'll get a better reward or i'll get a s sweeter treat i don't really know how to entice ravens that's not <laughs> i don't know how to do that um so the authors um actually compared this to compared this behavior to that that we've um we've previously not me but other people have previously documented in apes. Um, and they say that the behavior is actually on par with apes. They say that the tool use trials, um, in the tool use trials, the ravens were at least at least as proficient as um, tool using apes. And in the trade trials, the ravens actually outperformed orangutans, bonobos, and chimpanzees. They also noted that the ravens performed better than four-year-old children in a, in a comparable setup. To the, to the first two experiments, so the 15-minute delay and the 17-hour delay. So they're pretty, they're pretty smart, those birds, ravens. Okay, so now I'm worried about corvids and I'm worried about uh, octopus taking over the world. If they get together ever at any point, I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> I think they have slightly different domains. Still. Yeah, well, maybe. Ooh, one will but, occupy but if, that's the seas and one will up, occupy the mm. air. Where, where do we run? We can't run into the sea. Mm. Can't, you know, anyway. Yeah, I'm. I'm a little bit more scared of like robots taking over. I think that. I feel like that. How, how do the How do the um, ravens compare to robots in intelligence? I suppose if a, an older than four year old is programming the robots, maybe a bit better. The robots are a bit better than the, the ravens. Um. Anyways, these are just some interesting insights into the animal behavior world, and um, it it the authors really think, and I, I agree with them that this may um, provide some more ideas as to how and why intelligence has evolved. Um, in the very least, as the authors point out, for ravens, just as for humans, memories are, um, more for the future than for the past. Across Australia on the community radio network, you're listening to Lost in Science. And with me in the studio today, I have Tilly Boleyn, the Curator of Science, Health and uh, Medicine at the Powerhouse Museum. Tilly, welcome to Lost in Science. Oh, thank you so much, Claire. What a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to have you in the studio. Now, I am interested to know, you are a curator at the Powerhouse Museum. What is involved in curating science and, um, and medicine? What sort of objects do you, do you collect and do you have in the collection? Oh my goodness! So only it's three questions, three massive questions in one, Claire. You're amazing. Yeah. Well, um... <laughs> oh, I'm up to the challenge. Are you yeah. ready? Yeah. So being a curator is an incredibly interesting job, and it's different every day. So lots of people would think of us as pulling together exhibitions that are on at museums, and we definitely yeah. do that. But as you've alluded to, another big part of the job is actually the collection. So figuring out what stuff we want the museum to keep 
forever. So that in 500 years' time, someone will be able to look back on 2017 and say, these are the sort of ideas that they had. These are the things that they were, this is the material they were making things out of, the technologies they were developing, who they were, what they thought about and how they lived. So no small task. And so when you're doing that in health and medicine, um, it's quite different to being, say, a fashion curator where you go to shows or you look at catalogues and you figure out what are, you know, the, the sort of designers that are speaking for the time. In science and health and medicine, a lot of the time it comes down to serendipity. So someone's looking through the shed of their mum or their dad and they find all this stuff that they collected over their lifetime about their career or about what they're interested in, which is, you know, science and health and medicine. Uh, and they call me up and I go around and have really? a Really? Yeah, that you happens. You just get calls out of the blue like that? Yeah, that happens a lot. Sometimes it's for shit like a massive airline hangar amount of stuff <laughs> and sometimes it's just for some little things that they found uh, in the lounge room as they're going through their stuff. Um, and just so, with, and that's, yeah, that's this brilliant little part of collecting science, health and medicine is those connections that you have with people and the fact that you can't just, for the most part, browse a category, a catalogue to buy things. It has to happen through seeking things out and asking people for them, hopefully ahead of the curve. So before something becomes an incredible invention so that we're able to get all of those prototypes of seeing how they were how thinking and right. how it evolved over time. In terms of what we've got in the collection. Yeah, look, oh, I would, okay, maybe a couple of your favourite items. A couple of my favourite items. Well, I've actually got this show on at the museum at the moment called Recollect Health and Medicine, which is just oh. 2,000 of my favourite objects from 2, the health. 2,000? <laughs> my goodness. And so that's on until July 2018. So you can come up to Sydney or across to Sydney because, you know, people will be listening to this nationwide. That's mode. right. In fact, worldwide. And so one, it's a couple of my favourite things in there. Uh, we've got this mortuary table, right? So autopsies are done on mortuary tables, right? So right? this is the table that you have. That's where you... In- yeah. Yeah, where, where you have in dead also, people. That's wow. right. So in New South Wales, indeed probably Australia, but I know so this came from, this table came from New South Wales and right up until the 1970s I think each small hospital did its own autopsy. But then we decided to centralize so that all autopsies in the state got done the same way by the same people. And so they were going around all these tiny hospitals and smashing the these gorgeous like ceramic mortuary tables up because they take up a lot, a lot of room of and they weren't doing the job anymore. But smash this, it. Smash it. <laughs> this one nurse begged the guys not to smash it up but instead to put it on a truck and take it to her house. Oh. And for the next 30 years, Claire. Oh, hang on. What did she use it as? Well, come on then. What do you reckon? Uh, dinner table? <laughs> it wasn't the Adams family, <laughs> you psychopath. <laughs> No, um, something else that you do standing up because, of course, what, her desk. a mortuary table is at the perfect but, standing oh. height for you to be comfortably arms working. Was this the first standing desk? Oh, my <laughs> goodness. How great would that how have great been? Would that be? I think that's a, there's a PhD in that. Um, <laughs> no, so she started using it and used it for 30 years as a potting bench. Because when you think about it, it's perfectly suited to purpose. That is beautiful. It doesn't get affected by being outside. It's the perfect standing height. It's got these ways of moving liquids 
very efficiently down the table and then to a sink at the bottom where they then go out. It's so easily cleaned. (laughs) All right. Did I say that with too much passion? Anyway, it's a beautiful thing and you should come and have a look at it. Oh, I would love to see it. So there will be a new exhibition opening at the Powerhouse soon. That's right. And it's about something very close to my heart. Yeah. Um, Being a radio presenter. The Voice. The Voice. Yeah. The human voice, not the television show The Voice. Um, That actually, I get a lot of, (laughs) that's everyone's first question. Yeah, so this incredible show called This Is A Voice. It opens in August and it'll be open until um, February 2018. And it is a spectacular show and something quite different than what we're used to doing at the Powerhouse Museum. And, yeah, so it's about the human voice, which we all use all the time. We all listen to, we're surrounded by it. It's one of the first things we do when we're born is scream to signify our health, that we're here. Um, And yet it's something that we know that that most of us, you know, don't think about that much and don't interrogate, interrogate. So this show is this extraordinary auditory journey, if you will through space and time so we we deal with the embodied voice so um how we create the voice and also how we developed it there are some theories that say it came from group bonding so singing to bring people together bring um your tribe together uh so we go right through that to mothers bonding with their children when they're still Mm, in the womb in utero yeah and and all and so we're also tied really closely with scientific research so so we're able to do to show some of that research that looks into mother and baby connection pre-birth as well as uh we go through to accents so we've got this excellent app where you can try and figure out just from listening to someone whether english is their first language where they came from in a um in new south wales or in sydney really yeah just to show us actually how terrible we are at judging stuff like that i'm I'm so bad at judging new zealand accents i never (laughs) i never i can never pick it it's always a surprise to me i'm like oh you're from new zealand i so the show itself has um, contemporary and historical objects. It also has these interactive artworks and these pods that you can go into and actually contribute your voice to art installations that are inside the museum as well, as well as touching on disembodied voices, so how technology is taking over the human voice. We've all got Siri in our pockets now. Uh, and there's a chat bot that we've got in there that is being used at the moment to help counsel Syrian refugees in Lebanon who don't have any access to mental health care but are able to talk to uh, a chatbot, a counselling chatbot on their phones for free at any time they want. And it's like a post-Turing test, if you know what the Turing test is. Um, That is a test um, that was called that after Alan Turing who helped uh, invent computers. Uh, so that's about whether that a, a computer really has become artificial intelligence when you can't tell whether or not you're talking it's to a computer. To a computer or if you think you're talking to a human. Yeah, but this chatbot is actually, you know, so past that because the refugees were told right from the start that this is a computer, this isn't a human. And that actually shifted their experience but towards being more calm and willing to share their feelings and emotions because they knew it was a robot. So they didn't think that they were going to get judged by another Syrian man and they could say whatever it was that they wanted. So it actually, it being a computer, was able... Made them feel more 
comfortable yes. talking to it. So they did oh, a better job than wow. a human counsellor, which is just mind-blowing yeah, to is. me. Yeah. So it's a really interesting show, quite different from a traditional museum experience and it should be a lot of fun. Well, Tilly, thank you so much for coming in to Lost in Science today and thank you for sharing your um, experiences of the current exhibition, Recollections in Health and Health Medicine. And Medicine, and also the new exhibition that will be opening in August. This is the voice. This is the voice. Yep, not August to be confused 10. with the crappy TV show. <laughs> August 10 in Sydney. So anyone from New South Wales or heading to Sydney, please stop at the powerhouse and um, make your voice heard. That's right. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris. Now, this week I was going to talk about a fake disease called adrenal fatigue, uh, which you may have seen um, mentioned in such reputable places as Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop website. Oh, God. I can't say I kind spend of a lot of time reading Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop website. No? Yeah. Well, like, ad- adrenal fatigue is one of the adrenal fatigue is one of the popular fake diseases of the, of the moment. Um, the the idea behind it sounds plausible. Basically, it's essentially the saying that the the adrenal glands, which sit above the kidneys, um, they are just like any other organ, and if you use them too much because you're stressed, they pre- they get worn out, and then you no longer have the hormones to give you the energy when you need it. Like I said, that sounds kind of plausible until you remember that. Most of the organs in the body seem to work fine, no matter how much you use them. I mean, I use my heart pretty much every day, and it doesn't just like stop working. Yeah, really. basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So the idea of behind adrenal fatigue was made up in 1998 in a book by a naturopath called James Wilson. And despite being made up by a pseudoscientist, it has since forced real scientists, in this case endocrinologists, the kind of people who study hormones, to actually have to force them to do studies to prove that it does not exist. Um, like I said, I was going to do a story about this. And in fact, I think maybe I have just done a story about that <laughs> very briefly. Yeah. Quickly, yeah. But it got me thinking about the whole concept of this disputed diseases and how sometimes they turn out to be real. So a good example is chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as myalgic encephalomyelitis. Um, the, and this has in the past been thought by some people to be not a, a real disease. Um, now, the name chronic fatigue syndrome basically kind of sums up what it's about. Um, and because we don't really understand it very well, it's hard to actually get much more specific than that in terms of diagnosis. Um, we don't know what causes it. Um, it's very difficult to diagnose and to treat as a result of not really knowing what the actual mechanism is behind there. Like I said, now because of this has long been a controversy, be controversy about whether it's a physical disease or whether it's all in the mind. Um, I'm doing air doing quotes. Air quotes. Yeah. So yeah. Well, that's because because things can be in the mind and yet still be quite real in your life, obviously, mm. because medicine yeah. is quite complicated. Yeah. Um, and the complexity and the controversy, I think, is nicely summed up by the recent controversy around the PACE trial, P-A-C-E. Now, this was a trial that was done in the UK to investigate 
treatment for chronic fatigue syndrome using a combination of cognitive behavioural therapy and graded exercise. And that is where you gradually increase the, the phys- intensity of the physical activity. Now, this was based on a theory from some psychiatrists that chronic fatigue syndrome was a psychosocial illness, that they called it, involving dysfunctional beliefs, as they put it, in that it being an organic disease. So they had a theory that was basically all in the mind, and so they said what you did to treat it is give people a positive attitude and just make them work through the, the exercise program. Now, um, they recruited 641 patients and they published their final result in 2013 and they reported in their publication that the treatments worked with about a 22% recovery rate, which is actually quite impressive and this went on to be kind of set the standard for treatment for chronic fatigue syndrome. The trouble is that the people with chronic fatigue syndrome found had a lot of trouble with it because one of the kind of the hallmarks of the condition is that you have a lot of trouble with exercise and being told oh you just need to work through it wasn't very helpful for people who would find that they, you know, they try to do some exercise and they're knocked out for days afterwards so the patients weren't convinced that this was a, um, a reliable study and then some other researchers started to look at it and they found some there's some small problems with it so one of the, the big ones was that this whole idea of recovery um, they changed their definition of recovery about halfway through the trial and managed to define it so they would get a high recovery rate uh, when, in fact, the people who they said had recovered still had really bad kind of fatigue symptoms. symptoms. Yeah, but they defined oh, it as yeah. recovery so they could get a good result. So, yeah, these researchers and various patient groups got together to try and get their hands on the real data. It took multiple FOR requests and then court ordered before they get their hands on the data and then they reanalyzed it. And basically the 22% recovery rate dropped down to about below 7% and essentially was no longer statistically significant. Mm. Um, This was all in a story in the New York Times in March this year, Um, this kind of this whole scandal and and how it came out. So, yeah, look, it shows not only how we have a lack of effective treatments for this condition, but also the battle there is to be actually have it taken seriously. Now, there is promising research underway, though, and people are looking for a cause. Um, there's all kinds of things being investigated from the, the gut microbiome, mm. always a popular one, uh, something to do with the energy metabolism. And recently there was some work from Griffith University in Queensland showing that people with chronic fatigue syndrome have a faulty calcium receptor in their immune cells. Um, they, so yeah, they know what, what, why is that important and why do we even need calcium receptors in our immune cells? I don't really understand that, okay. but they're working on it. That's the so thing. They've, they've found something at least. Well, they're, 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 yeah, people are, it looks, it seems like people are investigating a lot of different, um, pathways and finding some odd things and some different results. And it's quite possible that it is kind of a synthesis of all these things come together to, to cause the, the condition, but we don't know yet until we figure that out. We don't really know. Um, it look, it does feel like an answer is a long way off. Um, and it still is a struggle because there are a lot of doctors out there who don't um, understand the condition, who still think that it is a psychological thing. Um, and it doesn't help that the recommendations from the PACE trial still are very influential. So in terms of getting reliable health information, I mean, there are some places you can go. I mean, I don't like to pick favorites here necessarily. Yes, I do. That's true. I, I like to pick favorites. Um, one of the places, one website that I like to go to for evidence-based health information is from the Victorian government. It's the Better Health Channel. Recently, though, there's been one from the federal government called Health Direct, uh, which is doing quite well in terms of search engine optimization because it's got, you know, it's a federal government thing. It's got a lot of links out to the other stuff. But if you look, compare the two, the Health Direct website basically just recommends the PACE trial results. It recommends cognitive behavioral therapy and graded exercise. Oh, really? Yeah, it's still got as its 
as its kind of treatments that your doctor may prescribe. I hope they listen to this show. I do hope they listen to it. The Better Health Channel has was prepared in conjunction with the advocacy group Emerge, um, the advocacy group for the condition, and it is much more up to date with its um, the mm. real picture, which unfortunately is that there's not much that can be done at this point. Community consultation, that's a win for community consultation. That is a win for community consultation. Of course, you can also go to emerge.org.au um, and find out what other supports are available. But yes, let's just hope that the current research that is going on around the world bears some fruit and we have have working treatments uh, soon. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.